Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The fear among the Asian American community is real. We have been seeing an uptick in anti-Asian racist incidents, and according to one report, there were over 3,800 incidents this past year during the pandemic mostly against women. For more on this, we'll speak to Kimmy Yam, reporter at NBC News and writer for NBC Asian America. Stop AAPI Hate released this report and it looked at incidents over the past year under the pandemic, but they released another report last year that examined roughly five months under the pandemic and it actually came out with a similar proportion of attacks targeting women versus men and it panned out to be around women reporting at 2.3 times more than men. And I think when looking at the data first glance, I think that it's, it's pretty jarring because it's up a thousand incidents more than last year. But really what we're seeing is a lot of underreporting in the community. I think that that hasn't quite been emphasized enough. Experts have long noted that there are a ton of barriers that keep Asian Americans from reporting. It could be language barriers. It could be lack of awareness around the resources available to them. Fear of retaliation is also a huge one. When a lot of these hate incidents started getting attention, I think that it really galvanized the community to really speak out about it. And then it created for an environment that allowed for more people to report. And so a lot of the incidents, you know, that were 2020 incidents were actually retroactively reported in 2021. And that's an important thing to note here from this report. I think they made clear too. you know, these aren't necessarily just hate crimes. These are hate incidents because it it includes many more things. So it can include slurs, physical attacks, shunning of people. So it's not just physical crimes, things like that. But why do they think that women are targeted more? They, from the article, it says they're just easier targets. Maybe they're perceived as weaker or something. This is why mm-hmm. they're being targeted more? Asian American women have always dealt with a specific type of racialized sexism. I think that when we think about Asian women just in the stereotypes attached to them, it's often that they're meek or subservient. I think that it's created kind of this idea that men can overpower, easily overpower Asian women. And so this issue of public safety is actually really not unique to the pandemic. One thing that Dr. Russell Jung mentioned to me when I was interviewing him for this piece is that These are issues that we've seen for so long and that they've kind of flown under the radar. The thing is that because of the pandemic and the way in which there's been a lot of anti-Asian rhetoric in referencing what this is, like that China virus language and a lot of that incendiary rhetoric, people have used this kind of as an excuse to attack Asian women. And it's attacking in kind of a different way. So You know, it's a really longstanding issue, even, you know, I mean, it dates back to when Asian women were allowed in this country. And so 
to say that this is like a new occurrence would be completely false. And I I do think that in a lot of ways, what we're seeing in the Asian American community, a lot of the violence and a lot of the pain definitely exacerbated during the pandemic, but not unique to the pandemic, for sure. One of the other interesting things in this report is is where these incidences were happening. Verbal harassment, shunning, those were the most common types. But a lot of this, more than a third of it, was happening at businesses. And, and, you know, we know that there's a lot of Asian Americans that own a lot of business. So this is happening at their places of business, places where they feel safe. And that kind of reverberates throughout the community, from what I'm understanding here, is that people are scared. They just don't know when something is going to happen out of nowhere. I think that... There are a ton of different factors impacting the community right now. Um, I think that we've been seeing a lot of violence toward our elders, and that's kind of a separate trend, but also a really horrible trend that we've been seeing during the pandemic. We've been seeing, you know, this rise in hate incidents and also rise in hate crimes. A separate report did mention that there had been a surge of 150 percent in hate crimes in the major cities in the U.S., primarily looking at New York and L.A. There have been particularly significant rises there. But we're seeing kind of these two trends rise together and it's created such a fear in the Asian American community. And it's so real. And certainly the events that transpired last night are definitely not going to help ease any of those tensions or fears that we've been feeling since the very start of this pandemic. Right. And and just very briefly, you're referring to this shootings that were happening in Atlanta at a, a few different spas There was eight people total that were killed. I believe six of them were uh, of Asian uh, descent. So there's a lot that goes into that. He said it was for other reasons, not racially motivated, but that still doesn't quell the fears that people have in the community. The last question I have briefly is, you know, you mentioned attacks on elders in the community. Do we have a sense of why maybe they were being targeted? A lot of those incidents, they are horrible and graphic, and I think that's why they've been getting quite a bit of attention. Even Dr. Jung mentioned that it is a primary reason why I think more people are reporting is because we're seeing something so graphic in front of us. And so more people find it important to do so. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's a hate crime. A lot of these things are have not thus far been found to be racially motivated. However, race could very well play into it. And I think a lot of experts have noted that elders could be racially profiled and seen as weaker or more lucrative targets, softer targets. And also, you know, there's a confluence of a lot of factors happening right now. A lot of people have different reactions to economic deprivation. And there's also opportunity could really play into it. And so a lot of these factors, plus this pandemic that's going on that has made poverty in a lot of these very poor and low income neighborhoods much worse. And so, you know, in that context, there's a lot going on. It's difficult to pin it to just oh, it's just the anti-Asian racism as it relates to the pandemic. I think experts say that there's a lot more that's going on and we should be careful to not kind of chalk it up to one simplistic explanation. We know that the administration, Biden administration, has tried to address some of this. I know there's lawmakers throughout the country that are trying to address this. What have we seen on that front? Biden has addressed the violence in his first national primetime address 
He also signed a memorandum earlier this year, and that really issued guidance on how the DOJ would respond to a lot of these bias incidents. We've also seen the reintroduction of some hate crime legislation by Representative Grace Meng and Senator Maisie Hirano. And I think experts are really looking at what tangible solutions these could bring. I know that Dr. Jung mentioned that one of the primary concerns that he has is just a lot of the focus is on hate crimes. And that actually covers a very small sliver of what's going on in the Asian American community. For something to be elevated to a hate crime, it has to be fairly serious. And it has to be confirmed that it's racially motivated, whereas racism as it pertains to Asian Americans, in order to mitigate that, that's going to take a much more holistic approach. And so they're really advocating for more education around Asian Americans and Asian American history and racial studies, civil rights protections and restorative justice models so that the root of the problem isn't further replicated. But for now, I think that many of them stress that there's a lot more work to be done because as we've been seeing, I think there are a complexity of factors that are, are folded into what is what Asian Americans are dealing with this whole year. And so it's it is a little bit complicated, but there are lawmakers who are speaking out about this is just what really sticks at this point. Kimmy Yam, reporter for NBC News and writer for NBC Asian America. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This past week, we also heard that Moderna is going to begin testing their COVID vaccine on children aged six months to 11 years. This is the next piece of the puzzle to widen the mass vaccination campaign beyond adults. For more on this, we'll speak to Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. The vaccine has been approved for use in adults uh, 18 and older. And same with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine is approved for people 16 and older. So basically the focus of the vaccination campaign so far has been on adults because age is, is um, an important element in who is vulnerable to severe disease. And the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. And so, and so the risk in children of getting severe disease is lower relative than to what it is in adults, but it, there still is some risk. And so what the companies have been doing is in steps, they've been studying the vaccine in people younger than 18. And so Pfizer and Moderna had already started trials in adolescents, basically 12 and up. And the results of those trials, they could be released relatively soon, just seeing whether it's safe and effective in them. And now what this news this week represents is moving down in, on the age scale. And so Moderna is now testing in kids under 12 Pretty soon, I think Pfizer will also start a study, I believe, in five to 11-year-olds. But yeah, so this will basically complete the testing of the full age range, right. and they want to just see how, how it performs in kids. Health officials said that if all goes according to plan and the studies turn out positive, that junior high and regular high school students could have access maybe in the fall, and elementary school age children maybe in early 2022. So obviously still some time to go through there. They are, as you mentioned, testing uh, very young kids here. Kids as young as six months. That seems pretty young. Is, is there anything that uh, a particular reason why they're going that young? Yeah, I think that's grabbing a lot of people's attention. It's important to keep in mind that there are existing childhood vaccines that are given to infants. 
there was a vaccine trial for a rotavirus vaccine about 15 years ago that I think enrolled about 70,000 babies on whom that vaccine was tested and then and it proved to be successful. I think that Moderna is just trying to get a sense of how it performs in the different age groups. They don't want to go any younger than six months for now, at least, just because they feel like that's pretty young and the, and, the, and a baby's um, immune system is less mature before that time. So they're going to do it in phases and they're going to they're going to test different doses in kids in the first part of the study to try to arrive at what is the appropriate dose, because it might be different from what the adult dose level is. And then once they arrive at a dose, then they'll broaden the study and just get a better assessment of, of how safe and effective it is. The uh, Moderna study, they said, is going to be kind of a combined phase two and phase three trial. They're looking to enroll about 6,750 children in all this and then kind of go through those two parts that you just mentioned, the dosing, which I'm, I'm sure is going to get a lot of attention too, as, especially since the kids are younger, right? Their immune systems are still developing. So they want to make sure that they get that dosage right. They really want to strike the right balance between, you know, effectiveness on the one hand and any sort of even temporary or transient side effects. Like, so we've seen with the adult population, some of these vaccines particularly in the two-dose vaccines after the second dose can really lay a person low for like a day or two and, and give them symptoms like flu-like symptoms or just headache and fatigue. And so, you know, it's possible that some of those symptoms also could be seen in kids. That's what they need to test it for. But I think there's also a recognition that that becomes maybe a more a more magnified issue as parents think about, do I want to expose my kid to have those side effects, even if it's temporary, right. given the relative risk of COVID-19 disease to the kids. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. This week, we also got news out of the Vatican that made clear the Catholic Church's stance on same-sex marriages. The Church will not bless these unions despite how stable or positive a relationship might be. And this news comes at a time when more Americans are identifying as LGBTQ and less are identifying as religious. For more on this, we'll speak to Bill Chappell, reporter at NPR. The church weighed in on this issue. They, they said they were answering a question that said, you know, does the church have the power to give the blessing to unions of persons of the same sex? And they replied negative, <laughs> which is, you know, it's pretty stark. Yeah. And then they went They went on and they gave an explanation that was then put out in, I believe, seven languages to make sure everybody got the message uh, where they kind of, you know, they said, you know, the church doesn't have the power to do that. They said that blessing uh, same-sex couples is actually illicit. They said it's not illicit, which means it's illicit right. to do that, that it's, the church would be overstepping its bounds and its power to do that. Yeah, for them, they said that part of this uh, has to do with, you know, it doesn't fit in God's plan for families and raising children. And then really the statement that I think a lot of people saw the most, they said that God does not and cannot bless sin. So that was probably one of the more hurtful remarks uh, to people in the LGBTQ community who've, you know, accused the church of not being there for their people in their congregations and people that, you know, saying that they feel like uh, being lesser part of the congregation. Dignity USA, which is a, an organization that represents LGBTQ Catholics, 
they said today they're deeply disappointed with this statement. Uh, Marianne Duddy Burke, who's that group's executive director, I have a quote from her where she said, you know, this is hurtful to same-sex couples and dismissive of the grace demonstrated by same-sex couples who live deeply loving and committed relationships. You know, this is a group that had been looking for some progress in, in helping those couples find a way to be in the church and have their unions recognized by the church, not to de- have their, their union essentially declared to be a sin. Right. The Catholic Church is a worldwide organization, but this messaging does come at an interesting time right here in the U.S. at least. We just had news stories recently that said that more Americans are identifying as LGBTQ. We've also seen this kind of decline of people who identify as being religious and more people identifying as, uh, I think Pew Research called them the nuns, those that uh, have no religious affiliation. It's not the kind of nuns that the Catholic Church is hoping to <laughs> yeah, get. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, um, yeah, you're right. And, and that's what a lot of people are saying. And the only timing I saw that collates with this is that, you know, in Germany, where they, where they legalized gay marriage a, a few years ago, church officials there have been looking for ways to reconcile that change, just as we as is happening here in the U.S. In Germany, they've been discussing it a lot, and, and bishops were, have, have been t- discussing this. It reminds me a lot of how in the U.S., we have law against marijuana on a federal level, but all these states are coming up with their own version of their marijuana laws. You know, maybe right. the church is trying to get ahead of this and keep different dioceses and different church officials from kind of forming their own policies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're coming out with, with a strong statement today that certainly got a lot of people's attention. In their statement, the Vatican did have a, sort of this caveat that said, you know, well, this is what we're saying as far as same-sex marriages, but this doesn't mean that we intend this to be discriminatory and people should still be welcomed with respect and sensitivity. In fact, that was a lot of people saw that as kind of the old idea of, you know, you discuss the sin in a way, but you, you discuss the person in a different way. And they're saying that, you know, Catholics should welcome with respect and sensitivity. And the way they phrased it was persons with homosexual inclinations, which isn't, I mean, that's not exactly the inclusive message a lot of people were looking right. for. And Pope Francis, for his part, had been, uh, you made mention in the article, looked at with some cautious optimism uh, by people in the community only because of past statements that he made. I think it was back in 2013, he said, if somebody, and this was, I think, with uh, with regards to priests that might have been homosexual, he said, if they're looking for God, who am I to judge? He also, in a documentary, I think he said that gay people do have the right to be part of the family and that there should be some type of civil union law to at least offer them legal protections. It's a tough situation where the church wants to be more inclusive, welcome more people and not discriminate, you know, and then you have a declaration such as this. And and I get it. Things don't change within the church so quickly or so often or whatever, but this doesn't really speak to the inclusiveness that they try to promote there. So it's that balancing act for them. And, and you know, obviously it makes a lot of a lot of people not very happy. Pope Francis had gone far. He got he got credit in 2013 when those remarks were, were discussed, and then last year when those his other, other statement came out. You know, he, he, people recognized that he was going further than any pope before him had gone in, right. in kind of being accommodating and, and inclusive. You know, and but yeah, you know, there was also a recognition even last year where people said, you know, we could just be hearing Pope Francis's own opinions that don't necessarily translate into a change in the church church doctrine and the I think the church doctrine got reasserted today. Bill Chapel, reporter at NPR, thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing, Oscar. Great to talk to you. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>